From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Karen Andrews was the Minister for Home Affairs in the Morrison government and is now shadowing that area in opposition. Home Affairs is a sprawling portfolio which includes cyber security, currently a topical and difficult policy area with the recent hacks of Optus and Medibank. As well, Andrews, who holds a Queensland electorate, is shadow for child protection and the prevention of family violence. As a senior woman in the Liberal Party, she's also one of those who will be charged with the challenge of finding ways for the Liberals to improve their current low rating among female voters. Karen Andrews joins us today. Karen Andrews, some of the hacked information from Medibank has now been uploaded to the dark web. What more can be done to deal with this particular hack? Look, I think there's a couple of questions that need to be answered in in the first instance, and that's really Medibank needs to make it very clear what information they had about the hack, what information has actually been stolen. Now, it is very concerning that this information seems to be being released publicly now. And unfortunately for the poor customers of Medibank, there is little that they can do to prevent that information being published. The best that they can do at this point is to try and protect themselves from identity theft. And that means going through very diligently, changing passwords, putting in multi-factor authentication registering with a number of organisations, I would encourage people to get in touch with ID Care to see what additional information that they can get from ID Care to help protect uh, their own identity. But unfortunately, this is now a situation that is going to play out for the next, uh, next several years. Now, Optus came under a lot of criticism for its systems and that it hadn't done enough to prevent a hack. Medibank seems to have got less criticism, but do you think that uh, it's been slack either in prevention or inadequate in response? Well, I think there was an extraordinary outburst from the Home Affairs Minister about Optus, which I think at the time was particularly unhelpful because government should have been trying to work with Optus to make sure that the Australian Signals Directorate and other law enforcement agencies were able to get full cooperation from Optus. But that aside, uh, yes, I think it's fair to say that there's been nothing like that outburst directed at, uh, at Medibank. Uh, which is also extraordinary. But I think that there needs to be more information available about exactly what happened at uh, Medibank. Now, there's various reports that go to uh, usernames and passwords of a a senior individual being made available. I don't know the veracity uh, of that. But if that is the case and there was no multi-factor authentication on that individual's details, then I think that there's a lot of explaining from Medibank as to how they were actually protecting the data of their customers. So I think that there are some very serious questions that uh, need to be put to Medibank about what it actually did. And they have sustained incredible uh, reputational damage. The only way that I can see forward for them to be able to improve their public standing is to be very clear and open about what happened, why it happened, and what they are doing to assist customers. 
More generally, how can organisations and businesses be made more secure from hacks? And what is and should be the division of responsibility here between government and individual businesses? Yeah, look, very good questions because ultimately it comes down to the responsibility of a business to make sure that it is protecting the data of its customers. And it should be doing that because of any obligations that it might have through legislation to provide proper mechanisms to protect the data, but they should also be doing it for their own reputational damage and the costs to them of having to, to deal with any issues that might arise. Now, when their coalition was in government, we focused very heavily on critical infrastructure because we took the broader view that it was the role of government to protect our critical infrastructure, and that is health, that is energy providers. Uh, For example, there was a series of industry sectors that were actually listed as being part of our critical infrastructure. We took the view that it was the role of government to put in place a range of measures to ensure that our critical infrastructure could be protected and that there were appropriate plans in place by uh, those those businesses that did have responsibility for critical infrastructure. Now, it is an issue as to how far government should be going where businesses are clearly responsible. I think that there needs to be some very clear information provided from governments to make sure that businesses understand what they need to do. And I actually raised this with a number of insurers when I was uh, Home Affairs Minister, and I talked to them about the equivalent of a checklist for cybersecurity so that businesses who undertook everything in that checklist and could prove that they had would potentially get a reduction in their insurance premium. Now, unfortunately, that hasn't been picked up very widely, and what the insurers have done is uh, come up with a newish product, which is insurance for a ransomware claim. Now, insurers will then seek to pay the claim and limit their damages, which is not what was the advice of the government, uh, the coalition government, and I believe it's the same for uh, the, the Labor government, which is that governments are actively discouraging businesses from paying a, a ransom because that does not guarantee the information will be returned and it potentially opens that business to future attacks. Another alarming issue that's in the news at the moment is the media exposés of visa scams. As Home Affairs Minister, to what extent were you aware of these visa problems and what changes do you think are now needed to prevent these scams? Yep. Well, ultimately, the Home Affairs Minister has responsibility for immigration matters, although uh, when I was the Home Affairs Minister, we had Alex Hawke as the Immigration and Citizenship Minister, but ultimately that responsibility sits with the uh, Home Affairs Minister as the the Senior Minister. So a lot of the day-to-day issues in my time were certainly handled by Alex. I would have some visibility of some of the more contentious immigration matters. I'm not aware of those specific issues that are being played out in the media now uh, having been raised specifically by the department. But what I will say is that there will always be individuals out there who will seek to take advantage of Australia's visa system and maximise opportunities 
um, for them to make money out of bringing individuals into the country. It's not acceptable and I'm not excusing it. And the role of the Home Affairs Department is to do all that it can to try and be ahead of the game effectively. Now, I think it's very concerning what has been exposed in the media. And uh, I, I can say that I would give all the support that I possibly could to there being a, a proper review of what has happened and how it can possibly be be fixed. Just like I've, I've already said that I would support a review of the immigration system, particularly the visa system here, because no legislation, no program should ever be a set and forget. There will always be iterations. And I think it's appropriate at this point in time to have a look at what is working, what is not working and make the necessary adjustments. You said that the department never raised the issue of these scams with you. Do you think that the department was negligent in not picking them up or what went wrong here? Look, and let's be clear, I'm not aware that it was ever raised with me the specifics of the cases that have been played out in the in, in the media. And that could well have been because there were there was another minister with frontline responsibility for immigration. Look, I don't think the department is negligent. I think the department would have been oh, undertaking the appropriate processes in terms of visa assessments and the granting of those visas. And I would be pretty confident that they would be concerned about what they're reading about in the media. Now, I don't know what the extent of the knowledge was that the department had over the last uh, few months, but I'm pretty confident that the officials would be keen to resolve those and that they would not be wanting to let people into Australia who are going to be rorting the system and or doing us harm. But it's pretty bad, isn't it, if uh, the media can expose these things and yet the officials with all the resources they have uh, and the government can't find the problems? Look, I think that that there's a role for uh, the public service to look proactively at a whole range of issues. And of course, it's disappointing that these things are being raised in the the media. I'm not aware of what the department may well have known about these uh, individuals along the, the way. But as they are uncovered, they certainly should be investigated by the department. And I would hope that the department is on the front foot and is looking at its own processes, how it's going about the process of granting uh, visas, because that actually is a departmental uh, responsibility. And yes, the minister gets to take ultimate responsibility for that. But the Home Affairs Department, at least in my time, was a very large department with a lot of resources. Uh, it's quite different uh, now because it's been stripped back and a lot of the work that was done by Home Affairs has gone to the uh, Attorney General's uh, department. But there's a lot of resources there and there's people who've been there for a long time with great experience who should be able to be across and on top of these issues. Let's turn to another topic. The government has started to repatriate Australian women and their children who've been linked to ISIS and have been in a camp in Syria. The coalition, of course, did repatriate a batch of children, but it's now strongly critical of the government's action. It says these people are potentially a threat to the community's security and has also pointed to the cost of monitoring them. But what is the alternative? given that these women are Australian citizens and, of course, so are their children, what would you have done if you'd have still been in office about them in the long term? Would you say they should stay in in a camp for a decade, for two decades? Well, I would have been uh, waiting for advice 
from the department that there was no risk to Australian personnel in bringing these people out in the first instance. I would also have been asking what the processes was going to be at any point that these women and their children arrived back in Australia, whether or not Australian citizens could be adequately protected. Now, I think that it is, um, I, I certainly don't agree with the decision that this government has has made. I think it's an appalling decision that's been abysmally handled. But I think that now we at least have what appears to be the first tranche of these women and their children who have arrived into to Western Sydney uh, there needs to be a lot more information from the the government as to really why the decision was taken. But more importantly, now that they're here, are there more coming? Now that's been that's been suggested quite frankly by Tanya Plibersek when she sort of started talking first about uh, about this a couple of weeks ago and sort of pretty much acknowledging that this was going to happen. It's been it's been certainly suggested and not uh, not denied in various media reports that there's more to follow. Well, if there's more to follow, uh, what's the process that's going to be undertaken and how are Australians going to be kept safe? And at the moment, there just seems to be one media release and very little else said from the government, even though many people in Western Sydney are particularly alarmed at what's happening in their community. We've had the Senate estimates now with the Commissioner of the Federal Police making some comments in relation to control orders. And can I say just on control orders, when I was reading in the media uh, before these women and children arrived that uh, they'd said that they would agree to control orders, I said that control orders are something that the courts determine whether or not would be applied. I think it's disappointing that the minister responsible didn't come out and deal with things at that point, because effectively it allowed the Australian people to assume that when these women came back, they would be under control orders, and that is clearly not the case. So I think it's concerning uh, for a range of reasons that this has happened. I think it's concerning that there's no information now about when others may well be coming into Australia. And I know that there's media speculation about uh, some coming into Victoria post the Victorian election and, and the reality is, who would who would know? Because there's a stony silence from the government. Do you accept, however, that there is a, a moral issue here, given that these are Australian citizens? I accept that the parents of these children made some decisions that were pretty terrible decisions, and I would never have been prepared to risk further lives by extracting these um, these women and, and children from a camp in Syria. So, yes, I am sympathetic to the children, particularly those that were taken there at a very young age and those that have been born there because they've come into some pretty ordinary circumstances. But there is a level of parental responsibility in there and uh, they, they will have to live with the consequences of the actions that their parents took. So let's not, um, let's not absolve the parents from responsibility here and make it someone else's problem. The parents were responsible. Now, your shadow areas include shadowing the issues of family violence and child protection. We see a lot of money put into the problem of family violence. We hear a lot of talk, but we seem to make very little progress. Beyond what's being done now, what are the gaps in policies and what more needs to be done in this area? 
Michelle, you're right to say that a lot of money has been put into this, this issue and I think that there's a very good understanding of what the problems are, but the solutions to that are very difficult and there's not a lot of clarity. So what I have been doing over the last couple of months is speaking to a lot of uh, women who have been affected by domestic and family violence, but also not-for-profits, individuals, agencies that have provided support services. And what they're saying to me is that the key area at the moment is housing and that because of the cost of housing, whether that be to buy a home, which is out of the reach of most of the women who are affected by domestic uh, violence in any case, but rentals are so difficult to find and so expensive, it means that many women are staying in places that they shouldn't be staying uh, in where they run risk of their own safety and the safety of their children. So I think if you look at uh, what some of the policy issues are that governments should be looking at, it's clearly housing and what's going to be able to be done to support these women to be able to leave the dangerous situations in which they find themselves. I will say that the announcement of $100 million for up to, I think it was 720 additional safe places is good. I I think that that's that's something that I'm keen to now see the detail of how that's going to be rolled out, but I think that that is a, a positive step because we have an obligation to make sure that women and men. So, I mean, I know we tend to speak almost exclusively of women, but it's not just women, it's men who are affected by family violence as well. There needs to be places for them to go and to go quickly so that they can start the recovery process. So definitely housing is the most important. I think the other thing that I've talked to people about is the division of responsibility between, in the first instance, state and federal governments, because In my view, what is not helpful is two levels of government trying to provide support in exactly the same areas. So I'm starting to look at policies that will go to early prevention, that will provide potentially support to the perpetrators of the uh, violence. And I'd also like to look at uh, what the opportunities are for the perpetrator of the violent behaviour to be the one that's forced to leave the home. Now, part of this issue is uh, the fate of Indigenous children. Too many uh, Indigenous children are being taken into protection and yet circumstances demand that large numbers of these children do in fact need protection. How can more of them be kept with their families and how can a better system be devised for those who do need to be taken away from their families for a shorter or longer time into protection? Look, it's one of the most difficult issues in dealing with domestic and family violence in Indigenous communities because what we do know is that, you know, when there is a child that is either a victim or has has been impacted by family violence, the first response is generally to remove the child from that situation. That means that particularly for First Nations women, there's a level of reluctance about reporting uh, that there is violence that's affecting them and or their, their children because they don't want the children to be removed from them. So I'm very conscious of that. And it goes to the comments that I made earlier about there being places for these women and their children to to go, or the men and their children, but it is predominantly uh, women and their, their children to go if the perpetrator cannot be removed from the, the violent home that that has been been set up for 
their partner and the children. But it is particularly difficult in Indigenous communities. Now, I've so far only had limited opportunity to visit the Indigenous communities, but uh, I certainly will be early next year going back to Alice Springs and going into other Indigenous communities to get a good understanding of what is needed to be done to deliver an outcome. I think governments talk too much about the issue, pat themselves on the back when they've identified what's going wrong, I think that government should focus more on what the solutions are and how they can effectively deliver those solutions. Now, turning to the Liberal Party and its challenges, last year you said that the Liberals needed to do more to attract women into winnable seats and you said that quotas should be given serious consideration in your words. Since the election, you'll have had plenty of talks with Liberal women and also women more generally. Why do you think women were so turned off the Liberals at the election? And should there now indeed be quotas? And what is the party actually doing about this issue as opposed to just talking about it? Hmm. So, look, without a doubt, women left the the Liberal Party in droves at the last election. And if you actually look at the the Teals that were elected, they were all women and they talked about issues that were important to men and women, which went to really climate, it went to integrity in politics. So uh, I think that in terms of what the Liberal Party represents, we didn't communicate that with women, but importantly, In hindsight, and even at the the time, I think I was of the view that we weren't listening enough to women and the issues that were important uh, to them. And I actually find it uh, personally offensive that every time someone talks about what's important to women, it invariably goes to childcare. And yes, that is important to some women at some points in their life. But that's not the only issue. And I think that as a Liberal Party, what we missed was talking to, for example, older women whose um, marriages or relationships had broken down when they were 50 and beyond, and all of a sudden these women were on their own. And they had little to no superannuation, and they had to uh, face going back into the workforce or remaining in the workforce way beyond when they thought that they were going to. So I think that this is the time now uh, when we're in clearly the early part of the election cycle for us to be talking to uh, women of all ages and talking about what is important to them and demonstrating that we are the party of choice and that we can represent and do represent their views. And what about the quotas? So quotas are a difficult issue for us because, and I'll I'll speak of my own personal experience, I have never, ever wanted to be put into any position simply because I was a female. So I never wanted to become just a number. But uh, what we have in in our party is a, a process whereby our party members determine who is going to be Uh, selected, pre-selected into a particular role in most cases, although we do have some examples, particularly in New South Wales in the lead up to the last election, where it wasn't the membership determined who should be pre-selected into into those roles. But uh, generally, that is the uh, way that pre-selections are conducted in our party, which is that the membership uh, gets to vote on that. So in my view, the best way to make sure that women have an opportunity to be pre-selected is to ensure that we have uh, women who are capable 
of undertaking a role in in politics, putting their hands up for for pre-selection. Now, it's um, it's tough to win a pre-selection in the Liberal Party. You've got to make sure that you are well known to the individuals who are able to vote for you. And they need to understand that uh, you are committed to the role and you're not just a bit of a blow-in that uh, that wants a seat in, in Parliament. You're actually committed to the principles of the party and uh, you're, you're prepared to, to fight it out on their behalf. Now, we don't have enough women putting their hands up for a pre-selection process. We need to actively work on that and we need to make sure that we are getting uh, the right women to be putting their hands up for, for federal parliament. I mean, it's no cakewalk in uh, federal politics, and I, I've never been in state, so I can't speak about that, nor council. But, um, you know, it's um, it, it's tough and it has an impact on on everything in your life, not just uh, your, your family. So I think we've got to do more to make sure that uh, we demonstrate that we are a party where we, we do actively encourage women to stand for a pre-selection and that we do support them. So just to be clear, you have gone off the idea of quotas. I haven't gone off the idea of quotas at all. Uh, and I think we need to consider quotas absolutely, but maybe the quotas in the first instant need to be so that we have more women standing for pre-selection. So it's, you know, we have to have equal numbers of males and females in a pre-selection process. The difficulty with the quotas and the Liberal Party processes is which seats do you then determine has to be held by a female and then what seat does it not matter in if it's a male or a a female? And I think that that's where a lot of the, the difficulty arises. In some ways, it's a little bit easier in the Senate than in the House of Representatives because it's easier to ensure that you have equal number of candidates. And it really comes back to the party and the party membership to make sure that they are identifying uh, candidates for pre-selection that can do the job. Just finally, you mentioned the Teals and the seats they won. You're from Queensland, which is not a very congenial Teal country, but the party has this problem now, doesn't it, of having to try to appeal to various constituencies, inner urban areas, outer suburban areas, uh, the north of the country, the southern states. Do you accept that to win office again, you do have to get back some of those teal seats? And how do you see the Liberals managing these various constituencies? Absolutely, we have to get back those those teal seats. And, And let's be frank about uh, this for us to uh, be back into into government, and I firmly believe that Australia will always be better off with a coalition uh, government, particularly at the federal uh, level. So I come from that perspective. So for the coalition to uh, to win, we need to win the best part of twenty seats, which is a large number of seats. We cannot do it. I don't believe without winning back the majority of the teal seats that we lost at the last election. Now, interestingly, under our uh, various processes for pre-selection, it would have been very difficult for any of those women to have been pre-selected simply because they weren't members of the party, they didn't know the the membership. It would have been very difficult. Some of those are quite closely aligned with the values of the Liberal Party, which means that their constituencies are aligned with the principles of the Liberal Party at a simple or a simplistic level level. So we have to win back some of those uh, seats. Now, what we can't do in the process is sell our souls. So we have to go back 
to what the Liberal Party stands for. And we have to start communicating that and we have to look at how we can make the principles of the Liberal Party um, work in our metropolitan seats and also in our uh, rural and regional areas so that as a coalition we can um, we can return to government in Australia. Now that's going to be a difficult thing uh, to achieve in the, the short term but we have to. We have to make sure that we are regaining those teal seats, that we are winning seats of Labor and that we are in a, in a position that we can form government at the next election. It sounds a big juggling act. Karen Andrews, thank you very much for talking with the conversation today. That's all for our podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with you again soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.